So it's like, we're always like, oh, we, is this really worth it? And then we meet women who say, I didn't think I was anything. You know, I, I didn't believe I, I could do anything. I didn't believe I was worth anything. And now I know I am. And I know I can have dreams. And I know I can build myself and my life and make better choices. And you're like, huh? Wow. Because we want that, but it's beautiful. <laughs> Welcome to Urban Limitrophe, a Toronto-based podcast exploring the global African experience by highlighting the various initiatives happening in cities across the African continent and occasionally the diaspora to creatively solve problems, support communities, create vibrant urban spaces, and build better cities overall. I'm your host, Alexandra, and join me as I explore this episode's topic. This episode is sponsored by the University of Toronto School of Cities. The School of Cities convenes urban-focused researchers, educators, students, practitioners, and the general public to explore and address complex urban challenges with the aim of making cities and urban regions more sustainable, prosperous, inclusive, and just. To learn more about their work, visit schoolofcities.utoronto.ca. This episode is also co-sponsored by the University of Toronto's Department of Geography and Planning. To learn more about their work and the different undergraduate and graduate programs available, please visit geography.utoronto.ca. This episode is about the not-so-glamorous but very important world of workforce development. Almost a year ago, I stumbled upon Build Her, a nonprofit based in Nairobi, Kenya, that works with women across the country to actively contribute towards urban development to create safe, inclusive, resilient, and sustainable cities. They work on promoting urban development with women, for women, by women. With the mission of promoting gender equality within the construction industry and providing accredited construction and manufacturing skills to women that participate in their program. If the name Build Her sounds familiar, it's because a few episodes ago, I spoke with Carolina, the co-founder and design director of Build X Studio, about their mission to build radically better buildings through their circular affordable housing projects and their partnerships with their sister organization, Build Her. Way back in August 2021, I had the pleasure of speaking with Tatu, the co-founder and CEO of Build Her, about their holistic approach to skills training and workforce development, and how through their various initiatives, they are working to knock down biases and close the gender gap in the construction industry in Kenya and beyond. So to learn more about their great work, let's tune right in. Builder is an organization that empowers women through connecting construction skills training to employment. And we are basically uh, focused on increasing the number of women in the construction and fabrication sector. And because we understand that, you know, it's a male-dominated field and most women feel intimidated or don't have the structures needed to integrate into construction work, we offer them an opportunity to get training. And then we also link them to jobs so that they may start their careers with, you know, with the support that's needed. And so what inspired you to start Build Her? Um, a variety of things, <laughs> which is a bit hard to summarize. So I would say, first and foremost, I, I am a Kenyan born and raised, um, but I'm an American in naturalization. And I moved to America when I was about 21. And so through that process, I, run, I learned what it means to be a minority that can, you know, that has a, a lot of negative things that were associated with this <laughs> identity that wasn't mine. So I got to, to understand what it means to be on the outside of a culture, disadvantaged or disenfranchised. 
I got to understand how difficult it is because all of a sudden there are structures that keep you out of things and you don't quite understand. And so that left me with a feeling of wanting to explore what exclusion meant in my culture because exclusion in America means something else. So I was left with that, like, what, what, how do people in my country who feel excluded feel and what, what are the reasons they're excluded? And then the second thing was, you know, I'm 40. So when I was in architecture school, which is my background, I was one of very few women in the course. And then I was one of, I was one of two students out of more than you know seventy students, and eventually I was the only uh, black student left. So there were two black students, and I was the only black student. And when I looked at, there were certain things that happened to make me again further excluded. <laughs> so I, I I got to see what it means to be uh, one of the lesser numbers in a sector, even if it was just a education sector. Mm-hmm. And then when I graduated, I moved back to um, Nairobi, although I, I actually worked in South Africa first and then moved back to Nairobi. And when I moved back with that exploration of, you know, who are the, who are the excluded people and what are the barriers uh, facing women who want to go into sectors that are male dominated, that was one of the defining factors. Um, another factor, as I said, it's a long story, is <laughs> I shifted my profession from commercial architecture um, into development work in about uh, 2015. And through that process, I was managing an organization in one of the biggest settlements in Nairobi. And in that program, I got to also launch training programs and I could not register a woman in the, in the training program. And it was a construction training course as well mm-hmm. in carpentry and joinery. And I actually went door to door to try and get women to, to recruit and Um, trying to convince them that they could do this work. And it shocked me because when I started the projects, the actual construction projects, women would come to site to look for work. Mm. But when I launched a training to prepare you to build properly, they didn't want to do the training because they didn't think they would be equipped. Mm -hmm. And so for me, there were all these contradictions in women accessing high value jobs that may be male dominated. And then also understanding, oh yes, there are other factors that are influencing women from emerging in in these sectors. So I would say overall, it's very broad, but that's what led me to this work. Okay, so that's, that's very interesting about, um, yeah, people were coming to the site <laughs> looking for work. First of all, the training was hard to get. With On the other end, um, women were coming to the construction sites looking for work and were worried that they wouldn't get the appropriate training to continue. So that's what you're saying. Yeah, and that they also, you know, when it came to work, it was more necessity. We have to work to eat. But when it came to training, it was about capacity and they didn't think they had capacity. Mm -hmm. So it forced me to break down those barriers. Oh, you see yourself as a worker, but you don't want to see or you can't see yourself as an expert. That's Mm -hmm. interesting. Um, You think that a man would understand this work easier, but you would do this work if you had to earn to eat. You know, it's just a different way of looking at things. And if you don't get those nuances then you approach the training, for instance, the way I was approaching it previously, where women weren't understanding how they're supposed to engage with the training. It forced me to adjust my thinking and my language. So when I launched Build Her, I had a lot more of that in my mind um, to help me set up a space where women felt welcome. 
Interesting. <laughs> and yeah, that's something that you've been able to do successfully. And so my next question, I really want to explore kind of like the build her model that you've you've created and this training um, like process, a 12 month training process that uh, that goes along with uh, taking part in the program. And so can you walk me through, explain a bit more yeah. about the, the model that you've developed, but also those like key components of that 12 month training process that the trainees have to participate in? Yes. So First, I would say I would start with explaining how we recruit women because this is some this is the place that we we first succeed and mm. many TVET schools struggle, many construction schools struggle, and where I failed previously. So the first thing I learned is in our context in Kenya and I would bet African countries, women work with social networks. They trust them. It's a way that they can remain safe. It's a way that they can have transparency. So as opposed to previously when I was trying to go door to door. The first thing we do is we go to our NGO groups and community-based organizations that have been working for years in their communities. And we introduce ourselves and we say, um, we ask questions about the kind of work they do with youth or the kind of work they do with women. If employability is a challenge, then we offer Builta as a solution to their program. So we say, we have this program to help transition women into, a, into high value jobs through training and linkage to employment. Do you need that? And then we, we make sure there's mutual interest in the partnership. So we recruit women from these CBOs and NGOs, and then we put them through our training program. So the training program is, uh, as you said, it's 12 months split into two big chunks. There's four months where they are training Monday to Friday, very intensively um, within the workshop environment. And then there's eight months where we place them into jobs, or if they go out and get their own jobs, we just monitor them. And we make sure that they're continuing to grow and learn within their jobs and also making sure that they're earning equal, you know, equal pay for equal work. So within the four months, uh, we split the training again into critical areas, which we identified as key components that affect a, a person, you know, in you being successful at work. So about 60% of the program is technical. It's, you know, technical drawing, theory, and then hands-on workshop training where you're doing the work with your hands to learn. And then 40%, which actually carries, it's 40%, but it's the reason people succeed, is a combination of life skills training. And life skills training is just uh, skills to help you cope with everyday life. So it could be communication, leadership, uh, understanding gender-based violence awareness, um, understanding how to react in your everyday environment. And then we have mental uh, health coaching, which is more looking at mindset and behavior change and also giving you critical skills to deal with trauma. Because a lot of people who grow up in marginalized communities have a lot of trauma they've had to endure that affects their success rate. So mental health coaching is done in individual sessions or group sessions. And then we have things like nutrition because we realized the first group of women we placed into jobs were kind of weak in their bodies. So we wanted them to eat well, to sustain their bodies for the hard work of construction. And then we also have physical fitness and strength training to assist that. So there's yoga and then there's strength training. Yoga helps with flexibility, mental strength, and body strength as well. People don't think yoga is body strength, but it really is. And then there's strength training where you work with weights, different weights. We do some interesting things with like things you can find in your community, like tires, different sizes of tires, but it's all about strength training and, and building up your body. And so the combination of those aspects between the 40% uh, life skills and social support and the technical skills are what we consider our holistic approach and our holistic model. 
And then when we place the women into the eight months training, we have a program we call employment placement, which helps women get jobs or helps women go out and seek jobs on their own. And then helps you understand how do I build my skills so that I'm growing my career? Because what we realized is some women are put to work and employers might assume they they can't do anything else or they don't want to do anything else. So they're not challenging them. And so we take it upon ourselves to keep visiting and talking to your employers and supervisors to kind of see, you know, how is she performing? What can she do better? What is she interested in that you can kind of push her into or encourage her to build her skills and challenge herself? And we just make sure that after the eight months, you're a higher grade of artisan than when you walked into the job. And after the the year, because that's the four plus eight, the ladies uh, graduate and they sit for certification because just getting into the door of a job is hard in construction. But when you have a certification, people pay attention to you. So we want them to understand their skills are transferable and have that confidence. And then we continue to monitor you. But at that point, we consider you alumni. And so we just keep track of what you're doing, how you're performing, what challenges you're facing. Some people come back to us to ask us to support them in different ways to build their careers or develop businesses, but we just try to stay open and let it be a fluid process. Yeah, I like the the word that you used of holistic, and that's something that, yeah, as I was reading more about the organization, that's something that I read that really drew me to the work that you're doing is that there's like this whole kind of like ecosystem, you don't just like train people and just kind of throw them into into the wild of the workplace to like kind of figure out all these different things, but there is that solid foundation of also like life skills to support for them even when they enter the workplace I think that's really really important yeah and it's you know like um, one thing you learn when you work with employment is there's a skill to get a job but it's a whole other set of skills to keep and grow in the job and so I think a lot of programs need to think about that especially if you didn't come from an environment that taught you that you could do anything you want or you can learn you, you don't have to wait for people to give you a chance you can go out and build yourself and you can do it if you didn't grow up with that, then you're so bound by every setting is sort of you're bound to that setting. So we have to help people who don't go through life being taught how to take advantage of opportunity. We work with them while you're in the job. How do you take advantage of these opportunities so that you showcase yourself, your skills, your potential, and then you get that exchange from an employer where they want to keep working with you? Because mm-hmm. it, it is a skill when you're within the job that needs to be developed. Definitely. You mentioned that, yeah, they learn construction skills, but you also use the word like artisan like skills as well. So what trades do they learn? Each four months is one is one track uh, just because of the intensity. Uh, the program we give is usually a year plus in other schools. So we, we, we condense it uh, by making it more efficient and also the tools and, and equipment we use. We make sure that it's aligned with industry. So it's set up to increase efficiencies anyway. But because of that, we we tend to just want a a woman to focus on one trade and she can come back for another trade if she completes successfully. Mm. Uh, But but we only have two trades now. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll be developing more. We have carpentry and joinery and we have painting and decorating. And then we'll be adding tiling in a very short while. I'm not sure if we can do it this year. We'll have to wait till January. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, the thing about us is every year we go out to the sector and we collect data from contractors fabricators and uh, construction regulators. And we use that data in addition to what we're observing within the training, we use it to set goals of what other areas to train. So for the next few years, we're going to be constantly increasing areas of training in the fields that we find are under-resourced. So 
It could be a low supply of workers and there's a high demand. Or sometimes there's a very high supply of workers, but they have a low skill level and they're unable to execute. Mm -hmm. So those are the areas that we want the women to go into because they are valued from day one. You don't want to teach something where a woman is going to compete with other unskilled workers and Mm -hmm. she's already an outsider. So we'll continue to build the skill, the skill offerings. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. And that ensures like the longevity of the work that they're doing. And so you touched on this a little bit earlier when you're discussing about Build Her and how um, what inspired you to create it. And you touched upon some of the kind of like um, misconceptions that you kind of have to overcome that let's say that some women weren't feeling that, you know, this type of work is for them, that the training, uh, they didn't have the capacity for it. So I wonder on the flip side, let's say from the, because I know after, um, as you mentioned, as part of the, the training that you do in the in the final kind of chunk of the process, they, they go out and, and they, they have employment. And so what are some of these misconceptions that you have to overcome in getting these like prospective clients for these trainees? I think if, if I start with misconceptions, I'll start from the, the person who matters most in the equation, and that's the women we, we serve and work with. Mm-hmm. And one of the misconceptions I think we have as human beings is we, we really believe our environments, what our environments tell us we're capable of. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing that we work on is breaking that misconception of people knowing who they are. You don't know what, who you are. You don't know what you are. You don't know what you can accomplish. If you challenge yourself within a supportive environment, of course, but if you explore and challenge, you'll discover surprising things about your potential. So that's the first misconception I think I should mention. <laughs> And then the other misconception for us as BuildHer mm-hmm. and other TVET schools is a misconception that you understand the learning process. You know, you may understand a training process. You may understand what is needed to train in a field, but that learning transference should be an exploration because it really depends on the background of the person you're teaching the education level of the person you're teaching, the the trust the person has within themselves. There are all these other factors outside your control. Mm -hmm. So that's a misconception we we actually break continuously in the organization is let's come from a perspective that we don't know what the best method is to achieve learning transference. Let's let our data show us according to performance and let's ask the women how they're feeling and what they know as we train. I would say the last level of misconception is employer side, of course. You know, I'm very interested in, you know, when I was in America, I was interested in racial dynamics just because it it was the first time I had considered myself a race, which might sound funny, but I hadn't realized, oh, I have a race. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not just African. With, With men and women working, there's so much in our biases that if we don't watch for, we're just constantly misunderstanding each other. So when a woman approaches a site, you know, a lot of men don't think we don't want you here. They just think, why would I expose you to this hard work? You know, there are a lot of men who just don't think they should give a woman hard work, mm-hmm. not realizing that a woman is doing a lot of hard work, even domestically. So the misconception of that anybody decides the range of, of labor that you're allowed to give, you should decide. Mm-hmm. It should be a, a free choice. Um, the other misconception is somehow that women are responsible for how men see them. You know, some contractors will say to us, we know women are good workers, but we don't want to bring them on site because they'll confuse men. You know, Mm. 
why, why don't you give that responsibility to your main <laughs> workforce and say, could you please control yourself? Like yeah. you're required, you know, you're required to control yourself. So a lot of conversations we have are those like, well, our ladies are professional. They're highly trained. They're, they're eager to work. They're eager to build their careers. They're not coming here to seek anything else. So maybe you should focus on educating your workforce because the ladies are not interested in anything else, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also making employers feel comfortable that, when women work, they really want to work well. So we tried to place women in groups of three, five or, or more. And we realized that that was a social protection because mm-hmm. when they can talk together, they can defend themselves. They can choose how to address something if something comes up. So we made it part of our policy. And we find that most contractors will always take the least amount of women that you allow, like three. Okay, we'll start with three. But after they see how they work, they're like, no, no, give us more. Are there more available women to work? <laughs> and it's like, they, they're so, they're so, they don't understand that women can do the work. So for us, it's, it's seeing, okay, we have to let them be confident because they're the ones with the power and the access. And we're trying to get you to see something. Mm-hmm. But then how do you balance that with protecting women and make sure women are transitioning safely? And then why we do the check-ins as well is, Sometimes an employer will make a comment about a woman worker, like she's really standing around talking a lot. And when you go to site, you're like, oh, so yeah, she is standing talking. But so is that group. Are you saying this group does it less? Because when you point to things, they're like, uh, no, not really. So we're like, oh. <laughs> so what exactly do you mean by standing around? And it's so funny how patient you have to be with this process. Mm-hmm. But what we do is we write down everything and we take everything they say seriously. So we can just repeat it back to them and give it <laughs> back to them to read. Mm-hmm. So they can start to see, oh yeah, you're right. She's not really, she's not really doing that. I don't know why I said that. Maybe it was something else. <laughs> yeah. But if you don't track it, then there's no way to address it. So we take everything that comes up as a talking point, checking point, you know, mm-hmm. not to accuse or debate, just to be like, oh, this is interesting. Tell us more. And that way we are just breaking down those biases that actually restrict women from working. But if you ask men, if they do those things, they would say no. Mm-hmm. But when you track them and you're able to, to show them, then you can address it. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, just going back to what you're saying about thinking that women are responsible for how the men are are perceiving them is, I feel like, an eternal, never-ending debate. You can go like, <laughs> grade school all the way to the workforce. <laughs> Frustrating. Absolutely. The same conversation Absolutely. coming up over and over again. So, um, yeah. But I think what you said about pre-memming groups is a really, I can imagine that another part of, you know, going to work is already like you said, you're already an outsider and then you're entering the workforce where people have like these established relationships and you're the new person and an outsider. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, making those interactions kind of be tough, but having that small support group, whether it's like two other people, even one other person can really change the whole work dynamic. It really does. And from the feedback of the women we train, it's also important because our culture is social. So just the way we recruit in, in through groups and with groups, we have to place in groups and with groups. And it's also just valuing the cultural aspect that enhance what you're trying to achieve. If you work with culture, mm-hmm. at least, and especially the positive, um, the positive habits of culture, then I think it, it just shows you a lot of things that could save time and save heartache or, or save challenges coming up. And so something, you already mentioned this briefly, but that a lot of the women that you're working with are lower income or like more marginalized within society. And so can you dive a bit deeper about what is the background of the women who take part in the Build Her programs? 
Yes. So the age gap tends to be between 18 and 50, I would oh. say. So a lot of employment programs are targeting youth between 18 and, and 35. And so we started within that bracket. Mm -hmm. But we realized that women between 35 and 50 are actually women who, and, and youth who would really grab opportunities because they've just had such hardship and they know why they're looking for the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then it also helps secure the future of children because that demographic tends to work to support their kids to have a better life. So we kept increasing our age group. And now we're just like, we say 50, but if a woman comes and she's 60 and she can do the work, hey, we'll mm -hmm. give her a chance. Um, one thing that stands out from our demographic is they tend to be women who earn $3 or less per day and often infrequently. So she might have worked once a week, twice a week, thrice a week, but she was never able to sustain a steady income. And so was capped at, at $3 per day and then often just working a couple of times per week. Mm -hmm. um, we, we work with single women, mothers, we work with wives. It doesn't really matter, but each of those groups have different supportive programs. So for instance, a lady who's 21 to about 26, it can be challenging because she's not yet sad to really think about life. Life is just like endless to her. And she's like, I can try a million things and I'll be fine. So that demographic, you tend to have to understand that and then really target, okay, how do I help you understand sustainable employment from this level? And then from 26 to like 35 is a group that are kind of just entering that mature focused phase. So really focusing on opportunities in the career and career growth opportunities really is what matters to them. And then the other group I mentioned where it's like 30 plus, sustainable income and increasing income over time matters. So I don't have a lot of time. These kids need to, to transition to high school or college or whatever. I need to get my act together. So with them, it's focusing on how can you make more money? How mm -hmm. can you increase your skill? Um, so, you know, we work with that spectrum. And then another thing we try to balance, which I like to talk about because it's our level of diversity for Africa and for Kenya. It's not just racial diversity it's also ethnic diversity mm -hmm. so we try to you know we, we work in a corner of the city which is the eastern part of Nairobi and there are all these settlements which are like neighborhoods which have smaller villages and each of those communities can be uh, populated with one ethnic group so what we try to do is we try to spread our recruitment so that we can have as many ethnicities attending the program because that matters to us is keeping that diversity mm -hmm. um, healthy so I'd say that's that's the demographic. And I, as I said before, there's a lot of trauma, either violence, abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse that we have to support in this demographic just because of the challenges that emerge with poverty. The education level depends on the training. So our motto is every time we launch a new training, we go to baseline, we say any education level is accepted. Then we observe performance for about a year plus. Mm -hmm. And we use that data to tell us what education background is most suited to this program because we're actually wanting it to be that no education is required but you know that's not always the case so mm -hmm. carpentry and joinery is high cognitive skills are required you have to have high comprehension skills you have to be able to calculate so that one has a higher education level than let's say something like painting because mm -hmm. painting you can just measure and there's a there's a whole formula to help you do it so we will keep testing that education level to make sure we are giving advantages to people who need the training most. 
And so how have the lives of the women trained by Built Her changed since taking part in your program? Oh my gosh, this is like the most encouraging thing for me because sometimes the change comes in ways you didn't expect. So Mm -hmm. one of the ways we didn't expect was women navigating substance abuse. So women who attend our program, if they struggled with addiction, whether it was drug addiction or alcohol addiction, tend to quit. When we measure them after four months, there's already a drastic difference and many of them have quit that addiction and are now seeking help to support them to stay off the substance that was affecting their lives. Um, The other thing we see is just women believing in themselves. And that's the one that really, I I always come back to this when I'm questioning the direction of Bilta because it's like an uphill climb sometimes. So it's like, we're always like, is this really worth it? And then we meet women who say, I didn't think I was anything. You know, I, I didn't believe I, I could do anything. I didn't believe I was worth anything. And now I know I am. And I know I can have dreams. And I know I can build myself and my life and make better choices. And you're like, huh? Wow. Because we want that, but it's beautiful. <laughs> and then I think economic changes are big because women, after about five to six months, women earn 500% more than they did prior to joining the program. They go from earning $3 a day infrequently to earning about $7 minimum to $9 per day. So a woman just has an economic you know, sustainability in her life that she never had. And the things we see, are, the first thing women do is they move into safer neighborhoods so that their families are safe. Mm-hmm. Then they put their kids into better schools and then they start doing more things for themselves, you know, like dressing better, buying better food. But that for us, the fact that she just moves to a safer neighborhood is so mm-hmm. telling. And also that helps us see how many children now are going to like grow up better just because of this increase in income. Um, another surprising thing for me is the decisions we make, women are making in relationships. And I think when we talk about women's empowerment programs, one of the biggest factors we see inhibiting women's success is their relationships their boyfriends, their husbands, their partners, Mm -hmm. and their parents. Many women who quit, quit because of pressure from parents, either parents-in-law who don't want you to be more educated than their son, Mm -hmm. or your own parents who don't think education is important despite you showing that you could make more money. They just don't want you to be educated. And you can't really understand it. Or partners who make you choose between earning a sustainable income and staying with them. And one of the things that women tell us is, they're able to make better choices in their relationships. They had accepted so much abuse uh, from their partners, and now they're able to stand up for themselves, get out of unhealthy relationships, or demand more health in their relationships. And that's something we kind of wondered what would happen, but the rate at which it happens is shocking. Um, and for us, it's, it's encouraging that also women are then, you know, raising kids in more supportive environments. Because the women are are having more agency in their lives and making choices. So those are the ones top of my head. But there are so many, you know, it's it's crazy. (laughs) I can imagine that the the like benefits are like kind of never ending um, for for the women who are involved. So that kind of is a nice segue to my next question, which is, you know, why is it important for women to be involved in the construction, like infrastructure sector overall? Um, well, the reason we as Builder really see in construction fabrication, you know, why we think it's important, it's, it's a high value job. You know, you, it's a job that you uh, earn more than, more than other sectors where women 
tend to populate like agriculture or fabric or, or uh, beauty, mm-hmm. you're able to earn more per day faster. And that's because the skill level demands a higher pay. Of course, there are pressures and expectations that come from that. The other thing for us is that it's sustainable jobs of the future. Like construction is one of Africa's fastest growing sectors, yet it's the one with the, with the lowest labor supply. There's such a demand and such a gap. You know, the National Construction Authority published about 2 million artisans are needed to fill the gap that's in construction currently. Mm-hmm. And for us, it's saying already there's a gap, but 50% of the population are excluded. If we just have that, those women walk in, you already have like half that that number is filled, you know? Yeah. So it's, a, it's about fitting a need in labor, but it's also the fact that these are jobs where women can be valued and increase incomes and have sustainable incomes. Then there's the added factor that there's a pathway to entrepreneurship. Like if we really encourage people to stay in construction for a couple of years before wanting to go and launch your own construction company, because every facet of construction is very different. And you really need to understand your skill level before you can develop a business line through it. But we see that if more women learn how to do the job and do it right, that they're more capable of launching companies that can take on bigger construction jobs and hire more people to fill those gaps. But they'll be able to create safer construction, which is a huge problem in Kenya and in Africa, unsafe construction sites. Also, workmanship can increase. If you talk to developers and contractors, a major bane of their existence is low quality work. So we're able to answer all these industry challenges by not only including women, but equipping women with the right skills, the right tools, the right attitudes that are needed to succeed. And there's just a lot of opportunity for them to do so. And then I think I would say the last thing maybe for me personally is what architecture gave me, which I'm grateful for, is I just challenged myself in ways I didn't know were even possible. I just learned new things and I challenged new things and I learned a new aspect of myself. Mm -hmm. If I had never done that, I would never have co-founded Build Her because it would have been too big. It would have been too, you know, just too much to demand from any one person. Mm -hmm. But through the collective skills of such a different trade that I had to learn, I really have confidence in myself, like I'll figure it out. So when when you do something hard that you never thought you could do, mm-hmm. the things you end up doing over the longevity, the long period of your life will be far greater than you could have achieved if you are playing small. Yeah. So that's what personally I just want women to understand. You can play in any field you want to play in. This is your game and you can accomplish things that we can't even imagine. Yeah. And so given that you are through Built Her, like filling in this gap, a really important gap, like you mentioned that there's a high demand for this kind of work and that as the sector is growing, you're filling in this important gap with the training that you're offering. So what kind of supports, whether they're like policies or like partnerships, do you think that cities should offer companies like yourself to help establish and expand your efforts into integrating more women into this type of uh, sector? I mean, I think the first thing I've been thinking about is there's so many government infrastructure projects going on Mm -hmm. um, and gender is a big target for there's a big five agenda that Kenya is working on, which is like a, you know, a framework Mm -hmm. for development in different sectors. If you just pursue that in every project, you said, you know, at the moment uh, we have 5% 5% skilled labor, because usually when people say gender numbers, they just bring women in to sweep and do stuff. You know, yeah. if you said we want to increase the skilled labor 
um, if you wanted to increase the number of skilled women working on this on this project or on this site from 5% to 10%, and then we have a target in five years, we raise it to 20 to 30%. That alone would give access to women in high value jobs faster. The second thing I think is we are filling a gap that the government should actually be doing. And so I like that the government has all these programs available to support TVET schools. But one thing that we come up against is our program is, is a disruptor. It's innovative. So a lot of the time you're working on the periphery of, of policy or, or the periphery of regulation because you're challenging that policy. You're challenging the regulation. So this course is supposed to take one year. Why? When we can clearly reduce it to four, it can clearly be done between four and, and six months if you resource it right, if you plan it right. And one thing we come up against is there's so much regulation that's set up, but that regulation is not answering our employability challenge as Africa. We have a number of, of young people coming into the job market and they're coming faster than we can absorb them. You know, I feel like the government should look at all these innovative programs and say, how can we have regulation to work with people who are giving us solutions rather than telling you, oh no, you have to stay in line to, to get through this thing that is clearly not working. So I, I have a big problem with the regulation around TVET. Um, and then I would say the other flip side of it is that the government is so strict. The government is also getting a lot of funding from multilateral agencies and donors to look into TVET. But if you look at a lot of those applications, it's kind of crazy to me because it's more focused on policy level mm -hmm. and strategy level, which is great. But the problem with Africa is not a and Kenya really is not a shortage of policy at least with Kenya, our challenge is not policy. We have so many good policies. It's implementation, it's uh, monitoring, it's evaluating the performance of those policies. What is the impact that we've made so far? And one of the challenges I have is, again, as money is coming in to try and develop programs, also consider innovative programs, which may have lower numbers than you're looking for, but if you have a challenge that you're clearly not answering, then everybody's perspective should be included and funded and supported so that we come up with more holistic solutions. So that's a lot of important things. Um, yeah, my next question is, what's next for BuildHer? Oh, my God. I think the question should be, how do we control our next? Because <laughs> there's, so, there's so many opportunities that come up. So we launched a furniture line. Um, in COVID, in December 2020, mm -hmm. we'd been prototyping because of the downtime. And we were like, we have some good things here. Let's go to market. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we want to do is become one of the employment pipelines for our trainees and developing this product line, exploring how to scale this product line, maybe shifting, kind of pivoting to create, still retain quality, but uh, create a larger number of jobs. But we want to, we've had, we're having success with it and we want to put some more resource into growing the business part of, of Builder. And the idea is it would, it we still function as a nonprofit. So the business, any profit that we make would be fed back into the training to create a sustainability line. Because at the moment we are donor funded and we don't expect that donor funds would be available indefinitely. So we want to have something in the pipeline to, to be self-supporting. And then what that's done is it's helped us look at all the different trade areas, like now with painting, we're going to develop an income generating program in every trade area so that we are trying to get some money put back into the program to grow the program. 
And then that would lead me to my next exciting thing is just adding areas of training. So I'm really excited about this painting course. And we've partnered with a very well-known artisan in painting in, in Nairobi and just you know, eager to combine his expertise with Buildhouse approach and to see what that does, because it also helps us not start to develop our curriculums from scratch. Our curriculums are heavily based on industry feedback. Mm-hmm. So having people who are already entrenched in industry just propels the training, which is exciting. And then, as I mentioned, we are going to start tiling and then we're exploring after that, what do we go into? So we are looking to start another program in another part. So launch our location too. And for me, that's really exciting and scary because we get to test what our scaling is like. Do we retain the quality? Can we retain the the program model? Um, And also what pivoting can happen in that process? Is it important that every training take four months? Can it take lesser time? Can we also do uh, upskilling instead of just taking women who have no background? Can we focus on women who are in construction and then give them a quick improvement on what they're doing? So just the pivoting as well is really exciting. And then recently we've had a lot of developers contact us. We have contractors who contact us to hire the ladies, but developers now who are either developer contractor or developers who are starting projects are trying to see how do we work in requirements to get more women onto their sites? And then how can they work with Builder to do this? So that's another level which came much faster than we anticipated. So we're just excited to see what that leads to. And we're hoping it's more, it's higher numbers of women per site. Um, yeah. And then just growing an awesome team. I mean, I love my team. <laughs> I don't know how many times like, I say that. But <laughs> it's very rare to uh, manage an organization before. It's not, it's not that often that you find people who own the mission and drive it as hard as you're driving it. And so mm-hmm. my curiosity is, how do I keep building a team of awesome people and how do I attract them? Well, I will add, you did mention before that you're starting a podcast, which is very oh, exciting. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you. Let's say like, mm-hmm. I, f- I totally forgot. There's so much. That's why I was saying it's always so much. So mm-hmm. the podcast is actually a, fitting into a larger program we're starting, which is looking at youth employability. So one of the things when we go into communities, you know, I don't know how it, you know, other African countries are, but Kenya, there's this thing, there's this debate about the amount of funding going to supporting women's empowerment versus men's empowerment. So everywhere you go, people are like, what about the boy child? You know, so we were like, okay, we like our mission and we see that we don't want to, to change that. We understand women need support in this area specifically, but we've been looking at both men and women and the challenges youth are having to access jobs. So in Builder, we make entry a lot of entry-level jobs that we have we've shifted how we approach them so that we have a very low education requirement and we take the responsibility of training you on the job so we look for people who are committed to that area of work in different ways in their communities but maybe lacked access to education to help them be professional and so by doing this work it means we have we open it to a pool of people who otherwise are excluded but then we've got to see challenges in how many youth are applying for jobs. You know, you hear a lot of people say, I've applied for many jobs, I'm not getting a job. But when you look at their application, their cover letter, the way they went for the interview, as an employer, you're like, oh my God, this was like a fail (laughs) on almost every line. So what we're doing is we're launching a podcast to talk about the things we're discovering in Build, how that young people can think about as they're going out to look for work. 
And we are also inviting guests who come from similar demographics who built themselves out of poverty into successful tradespeople, artisans, or businessmen and women. And mm -hmm. we're looking to inspire and, and show their multiple narratives and solutions that youth can use to develop themselves. And then we are also having workshops to invite youth and we're going to cover critical areas of employability from the perspective of Build Her asks these kind of things for these reasons and you can use this approach to, to seek for other jobs. So using our experience to teach youth different ways they can use to stand out and show their value to employers. And then we're also going to be doing community outreach where we go and hold employability discussions in the settlement. So we'll be doing them all within the framework of recruiting additional women, but the information we are providing can be used by anybody who's young and trying to build themselves and usually doesn't have access to mentorship, you know, like what other people would have if they have the resources available to them. I'm really excited to listen to it. Does it, <laughs> does it have a name already or is that still? We're going working? to call it Build Her Voices because we already have Build Her Voices where we share impact stories of women who've gone through the program and they talk about how the program has impacted them. So we just wanted it to be part of the voices at Build Her. So it's Build Her Voices. And so my last question for you is, how can people get involved with Build Her? That's an excellent question. <laughs> Thank you. I think the first is just spreading the word on our work. The more people who talk about us, the more people who would be able to contact us if there are ways we can be supported or, or partner or develop something together. The other thing I would say is we're always in need of funding. You know, construction, TVET, school, TVET training is, is such an underfunded field in the development world. So, you know, if people have access to funding, linkages to funders, whether it's small family foundations or larger funders, you know, having that connection and getting that introduction, it really helps. In fact, most of our funding has come through network introductions. And then one thing we're also trying to raise awareness of is individual funding. So individuals giving $100, uh, you know, we have some people who give $1,000 a month or you know, $20 a month, whatever range that you can for an organization that's doing a lot of programming that often doesn't fall within traditional funding, every bit counts. We can apply whatever you can give, we can be used in the organization. So individuals just, um, you know, reaching out and contributing and donating would be important. And there are ways that we can update you on what we're doing with the funds that we're receiving because people that matters to people who are donating as well. And then just follow us on Facebook or Instagram. We have a Build Her Products, which is the furniture and fit outside of Build Her. And then we have Build Her on Instagram, which is the training aspect and the different types of training that's coming up. You can also follow Build Her Voices, which has nothing at the moment, but we'll have a lot of podcasts <laughs> information also let us know if you're in construction anywhere in the world i love when women follow us and tell us about what they're doing all over the world that also mm -hmm. is because we show that to the trainees like you you belong to a community of women globally who are shifting you know the narrative it's not just the africa problem it's all women all over wanting to change the narrative Thanks for listening to this episode. To learn more about Tattoo and Build Her, please visit www.buildher.org. To learn more about BuildX Studio, Build Her's sister organization, and how they are creating 
Dignified Circular Affordable Housing Across Kenya, you can tune into the 10th episode of the podcast or visit their website, www.buildxstudio.com. This episode was edited by Hannah Ahamedi. The music was done by Imani Lambropoulos. And the episode direction, research, and graphic design was done by yours truly. For this episode's show notes and other resources, make sure to visit www.urbanlimitrove.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media to stay up to date and stay tuned for new episodes coming your way. Until next time.